Let me start with a fun fact for us today. Apparently, with all the trouble going on in Europe, Finland has closed its border. Wait for it. Sadly, now no one will be able to cross the finish line. Oh boy. Uh, As we approach the finish line in the Gospel of Mark, we're looking at the last days of Jesus Christ on earth, what it means for us. Uh, Beginning in Mark chapter 14, which we'll return to today, so if you brought a Bible and want to turn there, get ready. We'll be there in a minute. Beginning in Mark chapter 14, things start to slow way down in the narrative. All through the gospel, Mark has been moving along very quickly. Uh, Mark repeats the word immediately 35 times in chapters 1 to 13, but starting in chapter 14 to the end, he only mentions it four times. He's going to slow it way down. That, you know what that means, right? The sermon series is going to slow way down. That's what that means. The narrative slows down because beginning with the Passover, we're slowly approaching the climax of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if you remember, Jesus has talked to his disciples before about his upcoming uh, arrest, torture, and death and resurrection. But here at the Last Supper, which we'll look at again, Jesus adds something more personal that they're not going to want to hear. Probably neither will we. So I'm going to ask us to stand again as I read this passage from the Word of God. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to to him one by one, Surely it's not I. And he said to them, It's the one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Well, while they're eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it's written, I'll strike the shepherd, strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. They were all saying the same thing. This is God's word. You may be seated. Last week, we, we spent some time just focused in on the Last Supper because it was our communion Sunday. We tied it in, and uh, it was a great time together. But now I want to expand to the whole passage here. Uh, as we return to it, I first want you to see another example of what I've showed you before, Mark's literary sandwich. Uh, in verses 17 to 21, Jesus predicts that one of his disciples is going to betray him. One half of the sandwich. The other half, when we come to 27 and 28, he says, you're all going to go away. And in the middle, that's when they eat the Passover together. Betrayal. Betrayal, Passover. What are the followers of Jesus supposed to learn from this? Well, we're going to talk about three important things. First, we'll see that sin is universal. Second, we're going to see that sin is personal. And third, we're going to learn that Jesus sees our sin and atones for it. First, sin is universal. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples eating the last Passover. During the meal, he's telling them he's going to die for the sins of the world. And this is the context Jesus chooses to tell his disciples about their failures. Why? First thing we need to recognize is, listen. you got to listen to this. This is... Uh, First thing you need to recognize, look at the context. What Jesus is saying and doing here is meant for people who think they are Jesus' friends. They think they're pretty close to Jesus. It's for people who think, we're really following you. Is for people who consider themselves mature Christians and leaders in the gospel ministry. That's the context. And of all the places to talk about their failures of betrayal and defection, why the Passover meal? Well, in placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and the defection, Jesus is conveying that the sin he's dying for 
is not somebody else's sin. It's his own disciples' sin. Peter and John, you and me. Every time, in fact, the Lord's Supper is celebrated, the essential problem of evil in the world is right here among us. Sin is in all of us, Christian, non-Christian. Sin's universal, and that's why Jesus came. I don't know if you've ever read anything by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, but in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, he has a prisoner in the gulag saying, It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. See, most people, if you talk people, they're going to object to the notion uh, that they're terrible sinners because uh, they haven't committed any terrible evil like mass murder or anything like that. Uh, But what Jesus is helping his disciples understand is you got to go deeper. (laughs) You got to go deeper. It's not enough to say, I haven't done evil. Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount that we must consider also our desires and motivations. The deeper question is, have we ever wanted to do evil? That's the question. Have we ever lusted, coveted, said something we regret, been angry enough to hate or even kill somebody? We must consider, Jesus is trying to help them see, we must consider what we're capable of doing under circumstances that press us to the uttermost. Everyone is a sinner and born with a sin nature. The Apostle John tells us if we don't understand that, we're not, we don't get it. 1 John 1, 8 to 10, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Let me ask you a question. Suppose uh, someone you thought highly of, you found out, They really lied to you. I mean, bold, lied, flat out lied to you. What would you think of them? You'd say, well, they're a liar. But then, uh, let me ask you, but if you lie to somebody, oh, it's complicated, uh, I've got a justifiable reason. I told that half-truth or white lie. Why? Why do we do that? 
we don't like to put ourselves in a class with some of these other sinners. That's, that's, uh, we think, I, I'm not that bad. It's like the parable Jesus told to religious people. If you remember in Luke 18, 9 to 14, he also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, pay my tithes of all I get, but the tax collector standing some distance away was not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus' uh, conclusion, I tell you something. This man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, sin hides itself. Sometimes we're not even aware of what's really going on down in our hearts. Uh, I think that's what was happening with the Corinthian church. Um, we all have a propensity to become like those Corinthians. You know what they suffered from? The sin of groupism. I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus. We're better than you guys. <laughs> okay, all of us here, including myself, we know one or two groups of people we don't agree with and we may not even stand because of differences in ideology, politics, opinions, race, or whatever. Groups. And it leads us to think, you see, this is the problem. It leads us to think, you know what the problem of the world is? Or the problem in our church is? It's them, not us. Them, not me. Remember Solzhenitsyn. The line between good and evil runs through every single human heart. Till we understand that, we're not going to really grasp the gospel. If we really believe that we are saved only by the grace of God, you know what it does? It destroys us and them thinking. Absolutely destroys it. If you're still holding on to it, you don't get it. What Jesus died for. <clears throat> Believing in the universality of sin demands we believe in the universal need for grace. And when we do understand that, it rehumanizes people in our eyes that we would demonize by putting ourselves above them in a different category of sinner than we are. <clears throat> the grace of God manifested at the cross of Christ tears down the human barriers we put up. As Paul makes the point in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, 
For he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace. Who made both groups, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law and commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. It really takes us a long time to learn the implications and depth of the gospel as it applies to our lives. I'm still learning. I'm still getting convicted. I'm still repenting of sin. Sin that I sometimes don't even see. It's there. But sin is not only universal. We learn in this account, sin is also very personal. Sin involves more than just doing something we know is wrong. Sin, for looking at what it is, we must look deeper. As I've said, must look past the acts themselves to the reason we're doing them. Why? That's going to hurt. What is the reason your heart is giving you to convince you to sin against the holy God? What's the reason going on in there? There you go. Now we're getting somewhere. And what Jesus does here, I'm telling you, the, to understand what Jesus is saying to his disciples right here, they're, one betrays, they all defect, and in the middle I'm going to tell you about what I'm going to do, dying for your sins. We must see what we're capable of if we're ever going to understand how the, how the gospel can heal us. Jesus helps his disciples and us think deeper about the personal heart issues of our sins in his very ambiguous statement at the Last Supper. He, you know what he says? One of you will betray me. He doesn't say who. He just says, one of you will. Why is Jesus being so ambiguous? Well, there's two reasons. The first reason Jesus is ambiguous is because he wants every single one of his disciples to look into their hearts. Go ahead, look. The word betray, uh, Jesus uses, means to hand hand someone over, uh, to sell them out. And you know what we see? Because of that, we see the sin of betrayal is actually a sin of motivation uh, in our heart. The sin of betrayal says, you know what? I'll follow you and be loyal to you as long as it benefits me. (laughs) And if you disappoint me, I'm out of here. I'm handing you over. I'm selling out. There you go. Look deeper. Why? 
You know, you could look at two different people. One person may do everything Jesus says, thinking, thinking in their heart, if, you know, if I do this, uh, Jesus will bless me. And if he doesn't, you say, well, then why on earth would I follow him? Another person, though, may do everything Jesus says just to love him. No other reason. Not to get some. Now, on the surface, they both look the same. They're both doing what Jesus said. But their motivation is entirely different. Sin of the heart. Okay. Now for the hard part. Here's what's going on. So he, he, he tells them, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. And uh, there's only one way, I'm telling you, I personally experienced this myself. I think it's a truism. There's only one way you and I will really, really know which one of those two people we are. What our motivation really is. There's only one way. Biblically, there's only one way, and God knows it. You know when that is? When things go really, really bad for you. That's when we'll know what's in there. And that's why Jesus asked this ambiguous question. One of you, up until now, you see, the disciples uh, have been hearing Jesus teach on the kingdom of God. They're expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom of God in the world. And they expect it to be on top of the heat. They're his close followers. Now Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. I want you to see what the disciples do. <laughs> Verse 19. They don't, they don't exactly deny it. They say, surely it couldn't be me. They're looking, they're looking deep. What are they capable of? They have a very ambivalent response. They're all saying, not me. Me? Jesus wants them and us to see we may not be a Judas through and through. We still have a Judas inside us. We all will probably have a line about our commitment to him. We have a price. Take a look. And Jesus' disciples will discover we all have the capacity to say no to God in order to save ourselves. We do, if we're honest. And if you think about it, this is actually, I believe, one of the messages we 
find it from the book of Job, which is another sermon series. But if you remember the story, Satan comes to God and accuses Job of having a very conditional service to God. And he says to God, Job 1.9, <laughs> he's probably laughing. Do you think Job serves you for nothing? Everybody's got a price. He's only serving you, worshiping you, because you blessed him. He's just using you to get the blessing. So Satan says to God, I'll prove it to you. Let things go really, really bad in his life, I guarantee you, he'll sell you out in a heartbeat. Does Job serve God for nothing? Just because he's God? Satan doesn't know anybody like that. So, why do you serve God? Why do we serve God? Are we just using him to get what we want? Be a good little person? Or do we worship and serve him just because he's God? He's Lord of all. Listen to me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Every time we go through a Job experience, a very, very hard time, which many of us have. It's as Satan is saying about us. Now we'll see what the true motivation of this person's heart really is. Because that's what's happening at the Last Supper. There's almost no way to know what's down there in our heart, under the surface, in the depths of our souls, until bad things happen to us. And you know what? God lets them happen so we can see it. That's what he did with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, Moses reminds them. Remember how hard it was for us in the wilderness? He says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you. Why? To know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do you have a price? He humbled you. He let you be hungry, fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, back in Mark 14, as you know, 
the disciples are about to enter experience when things are going to go very, very bad. And Peter and others who think they're ready to die for Jesus. I'm ready to die for Jesus. (laughs) Okay. They're going to see the sin they are capable of revealed to them. Listen carefully. We are sinners saved by grace, not by any good thing we do. And we must keep the truth of the gospel front and center to keep our spiritual bearings when things go real bad. You see, religion operates on the basis of works. Uh, Believes that God's acceptance of me is dependent on me. I need to do good. And if I obey him and turn from my sin, then God will accept me and bless me. The gospel operates on the principle of grace. God's acceptance of me is not based on me. It's based on God. God accepts me by grace through faith in his son. And after he does that, I I gladly repent, obey him, glorify him. These two are diametrically opposed paradigms of salvation. A gospel person is someone where Jesus is an end in himself, not a means to an end. A gospel-learning person sees Jesus as so beautiful and what he did so incredible that we obey him with joy, serve him spontaneously, like the woman who poured ointment all over Jesus just because she wanted to, not because what she could get. Well, how do we find Jesus beautiful like that? And not like Judas as a means to an end. Well, it begins by listening to Jesus and know that he sees us and atones for our sin. Our last point. Get this. Jesus predicts the betrayal of one disciple and the defection of all the disciples at the Last Supper. At the Last Supper! (laughs) Knowing that his disciples will fail him is where Jesus announced that his body is going to be given for them. And his blood is going to be shed for them, for the forgiveness of their sins. As I said before, there are two reasons Jesus begins with this ambiguous statement when he says, one of you will betray me. And the first reason, he wants his disciples to look into their hearts, see what they're capable of. And they, I think they're starting to see it. Can't be, is it me? And Jesus knows they're all going to abandon him when the pressure's on. But Jesus says he's going to die for their sin. Here's the second reason Jesus gives that ambiguous statement. One of you will betray me. It's for Judas. He's saying to Judas, I see you. I see you. Jesus is giving him a warning. 
Do not follow through with your plan. It would be better if you hadn't been born if you do. Notice, okay, step, notice Jesus' beautiful act of courtesy and love towards Judas. Not only is he eating a meal with his betrayer, he knows it. He doesn't unmask him publicly. He doesn't call him out. Doesn't expose him. Humiliate him. Doesn't do that. Why? He wants Judas to repent. That's why. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. He wants to melt him with love and grace as he talks about his own body being given to them, his own blood shed for their sin. He wants to melt him in the knowledge that Jesus hasn't abandoned him, even though he knows the sin in his heart. Jesus doesn't condemn him. He wants to convict him. Behold your Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect example and expression of truth and grace, gentleness and firmness, justice and sensitivity. Jesus shows us if you really love somebody, you won't trash and ruin them. By the way, this isn't the first time we see Jesus doing something like Something like this. If you remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, a woman is caught in adultery, ready to be stoned to death by her accusers, and Jesus comes up to her and says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Okay, think about that. It makes sense, really, to say, Oh, ma'am, this isn't a sin. I don't condemn you. It would also make sense to say, it's a sin, ma'am, and I do condemn you for it. But it never makes sense. It doesn't make sense to say, it's a sin, but I don't condemn you. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say something like we would hear. Oh, who's to say whether that's sin or not? Person needs to decide that for themselves. Neither does Jesus say, you know what, you're a great sinner. You're a fallen woman. I reject you. Here, wear this scarlet letter the rest of your life. Doesn't say that either. Jesus said to her, I see you. This is sin, what you've done. It is wrong, but I don't condemn you. How can can Jesus say that? Because the gospel is good news. Our sins, you see, past, present, future, have been atoned for by Jesus. That is what he was going to do. And Paul, uh, the apostle, explains one of the results of that, believing the gospel, is Romans 8.1, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. 
So let me ask you, who, what Christian brother or sister are you condemning even today? You're condemning. They may have violated you or sinned against you 30 years ago, but boy, I condemn them. Really? If a person's in Christ Jesus by faith, there is no condemnation. It's only coming from you, not God or Jesus. At the Last Supper, he's got his disciples around and he says to them, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, let's eat this sweet bread. But in a few hours, I'm going to be getting the wormwood and the gall and a sponge filled with vinegar to free you from the condemnation of your sin. Behold the beauty of Jesus Christ our Lord, who takes away our sin and all our condemnation. Maybe you don't know it yet, but Jesus sees you right down to the core. Every part of you, just as he did with Judas, right down to your heart and soul. He sees you. He sees your sins. He sees your faults. He sees your failures. And yet, he loves you unto death. He really does want you to open your heart Acknowledge your sin and believe in him to receive forgiveness and eternal life. That's the gospel. Maybe you do know Jesus and have believed in him, but maybe you're still racked with sin, the guilt of your sin in your life. He sees you too. He knows what you're hiding, struggling with. And in his kindness... He wants you to repent and be restored. We'll see as he continues on with Peter what happens. Turn to him, confess your sin, be cleansed of all your unrighteousness, believe in Jesus for salvation. Let's pray. Father, I uh, thank you. <laughs> your, your word says that even while we were, we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Uh, and you tell us that his death for sin completely satisfied your justice on our behalf. Uh, hard to get our head around that, Lord, but we ask you to help us understand it. So that we, uh, thank, you, we thank you that there's now no condemnation for those of us in, in Christ Jesus. Please help us now not to condemn others. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus and serve him with a pure heart and a willing mind. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.